Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Denderen shortly. But first up, while Melbourne City sit at the top of the A-League men's, the hottest team in the comp is Carl Vietz Adelaide United on an unbeaten 10-game streak. And while they have recently returned form Central Coast Mariners nipping at their heels with three rounds to go before the finals. They are a team more than capable of upsetting the citizens' attempt at the double if they can keep their form going through to the finals. We had his rookie goalkeeper on the show a couple of weeks ago on the eve of his Socceroos debut, Joe Gauci. So this week we'll talk to the main man himself in VR fresh from signing a new three-year contract to lift the hood on what's happening down at Hindmarsh. Then our focus shifts to a team who are experiencing both ends of the spectrum in the men's and women's top flight in England. In the women's Super League, Chelsea has the competition in their hands to lose. And while Emma Hayes' team trail Manchester United by a point with a handful of games to go, they have a game in hand to hopefully send Sam Kerr to the World Cup with another Premiership medallion. Meanwhile, in the men's, Frank Lampard's return hasn't delivered any kind of bounce, let alone a dead cat one. We'll talk to the Athletics' Liam Toomey to get a sense of just what it's like to have two such vastly different teams under one roof at Stamford Bridge. And of course, we'll wrap it up with uh, a couple of uh, little bits of information you might not see everywhere in World Cup Corner. So Derek Edge is taking the pine again this week. He'll be tuning in at some point, but uh, it's you and me with Willem. How are you, mate? Yeah, good to be back on the main show, gents, after a few weeks off with the family. And, and of course, the football doesn't disappoint, does it? So I'm sure we'll cover quite a lot over the next uh, little while. I know, and there certainly will be a particular game that we'll have a bit of fun with uh, over the course of not only this main show of ours, but also stoppage time, Willem. I'm sure uh, you've got plenty to get us started with, mate, so why don't you fire away? Yeah, Derek, good to have you back. You've got about eight or nine minutes by my calculation to uh, get your thoughts together, Ari Arsenal. We'll start with the domestic action for now. Uh, Or not domestic, but our our national team. The Matildas have lost their first match since September. They went down 1-0 to Scotland in London on Friday. Both Caitlin Ford and Sam Kerr were unavailable through injury. In their place, Tony Gustafsson started Larissa Crummer and Mary Fowler, though ultimately a long-range Nicola Doherty strike proved the difference. Doherty trying to bend it towards that top corner. And the opening goal is for Scotland, 60 seconds into the second half. What a delightful finish this is. It had some height about it. It had some loop underneath it, and Mackenzie Arnold has been caught off her line because that has well and truly just kissed the inside of the woodwork there and found its way into the back of the net, but the Matildas have been caught off guard here. Kerr is expected to be fit to face England on Wednesday morning Australian time, although Emily Van Egmond and Holly McNamara have returned to their clubs with injury. So, Rob, just two matches to go. We've got the send-off against France, uh, and we've also got the clash upcoming against England. Ellie Carpenter's back. Great to see that was a concern for so long, uh, but now issues over Ford, Catley, Van Egmond. Only 99 days to go, and suddenly, yeah, the, this, the, those more sort of squad concerns to see if everything can fall in place all at once. Yeah, exactly. And um, and whilst as podcasts go, um, we're 
recording the show on the eve of the game against England. So a lot of our listeners will will be aware of the result in that game. The uh, the Scotland match uh, was pretty much uh, an opportunity for for the second string side to to roll out and see what uh, Gustafsson uh, could uh, extract out of them. And and to be honest, it, it, it was pretty um, unimpressive by world class standards for a team ranked uh, number ten in the world. I mean, Scotland are a handy side, but uh, they uh, they should have been the type of team that even the second string Matildas ought to have been a lot more competitive with. It wasn't just losing, it was the manner of losing and the, the way that uh, the uh, the team didn't seem to gel. So it was, uh, it was good news to see Ellie Carpenter back in the squad. Um, the uh, the result uh, was a disappointing one, regardless, uh, particularly coming off the back of, uh, of you know, a, a strong streak highlighted by that win against Sweden last year. Jamie McLaren has righted the ship for Melbourne City in their pursuit of a third straight premiership. City won just one of four games in March as McLaren battled a toe injury. That brace against Wellington in a 4-1 win just about seals the deal, given Adelaide's draw with Sydney. So the focus this week, Rob, will turn to the battle for the top six. Uh, We've got sixth placed Sydney against seventh placed Glory. A point splits them uh, and Wellington in fifth We've had a real stumble on 31 points. They're going to play Brisbane in eighth on 26. So a lot of numbers there, but the uh, the breakdown is that a five-point gap there uh, could be cut to two. But the story, uh, Melbourne City have just about sewed up that third consecutive premiership, and they did need that, Rob, as I said. Uh, just the one win in four across March. McLaren sat out the international break with Australia, uh, but, yeah, has come back and, yeah, needed that, needed that brace. Yeah, look, it feels like they have got it locked up, but I think that the biggest story is the one that we're going to discuss with Carl Viet after the break in the uh, fact that that in the A-League men's and women's competitions, the the objective for a team that, that has been as dominant as City have been throughout the course of this season in the same way that Sydney FC uh, have the same scenario playing out for them in the women's competition is to win the double. And, and that uh, grand final loss is ultimately just uh, souring a, a season of, uh, of, of great success. So um, I, I'm just going to be fascinated to watch the way these finals, and I know our good mate Edge is not listening or not on on the show this week, but will be listening. Uh, it hasn't always been the biggest fan of the finals, as to be fair, um, a lot of pure football people are not. But in this country, um, it does mean something. And it just happens to be um, a, a case where the the broader attention of the sporting community does uh, does uh, focus on, on those finals. So, you know, whether you win the premiership or not, the, uh, the grand final means a hell of a lot. A-League Women's Finals this week. You can bet Edge will have his eye on those. Melbourne victory against Melbourne City in Saturday's elimination final at Casey Fields. That's at 3pm. Loser goes home. And then Sunday's semi between Sydney FC and Western United at Allianz. 5.45. Winner into the grand final. Loser plays the winner of the derby. Shout out to Melbourne Victory skipper Kayla Morrison who had this to say at the finals launch last week. Yeah, I think it would be great to have two... Melbourne teams in the grand final with all the drama surrounding where the grand final is. I think that would just be a really big opportunity for everyone to say maybe this wasn't the best decision, but again, we have to get through round one first and then we can focus on that. Arsenal have let slip a two goal lead to draw two all with Liverpool, meaning Man City can close the gap to just three points should they win their game in hand. Two goals up, 30 minutes in through Martinelli and Jesus. Uh, The Gunners had Aaron Ramsdale to thank for taking anything from the game after two immense saves denied Liverpool a winner. Where did you sit with it, Derek? 2-0 up after 30 minutes. 
uh, all looking rosy. And then, yeah, as I've sort of summed up there by the end of it, happy with the point? Yeah, well, was happy with a point in the end, Willem. We were up with Henry Patrick, uh, giving him a bit of a feed and a bit of a settle down. So we're able to uh, watch the game live and, yeah, a tale of two halves, really. Uh, you know, I, I think the media has gone down the narrative of Arsenal have stumbled, Arsenal are throwing away the title. Look, I think a draw at Anfield, given our record there, is is extremely credible. Um, yes, I know that obviously we were very dominant for the first 30 minutes or so, but, you know, this Liverpool side, albeit not having a great season, still very dangerous at home. And this is still a very young uh, and, you know, relatively inexperienced Arsenal team. So, as you said, Aaron's Ramsdale pulling off, you know, two or three worldies at the end there, it could have been a lot worse. Um, and I think I think uh, if we lost the game, I think getting back on the bus would have been tough. I think look and walk away from it thinking, geez, we could have won there, but you know what? We could have lost. Let's just take the point and move on, and uh, let's just hope that this uh, relentless City machine has some fallibility in it between now and the end of the season. Look, your point um, can be taken if you're interpreting it the result from the level of reality and the the recent or history of, of, of Arsenal visits to, to Anfield. But surely, Derek, and, and the game was well and truly in Arsenal's hands. They were dominating. Um, and, and that 2-0 lead, the, the kind of uh, uh, momentum that they build up to get to that point, um, surely... To, for, the, for the pendulum to swing so dramatically the other way. And, and yeah, the point, I think it, it is fair to say that it's a point gain because Ramsdale was the hero and, you know, you don't see Mo Salah miss too many penalties. He's lost, he's missed two, you know, in the past month or so. And and for Ramsdale to make two miraculous saves and three, you know, late in total was, was incredible. But, uh, um, you know, if, if you win... It's Ramsdale's the hero. If you lose the title, that is, uh, then this uh, this day at Anfield will be the, the 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 one that sort of defines the season, won't it? Um, no, I don't think so, Rob. Uh, I you know Arsenal are undefeated in eight games. They are being uh, chased down by one of the most um, unrelenting football teams in the history of of English football. The standard is beyond high and as a Liverpool fan you know what it's like being in these mm. um these races with Manchester City and I just think that you know going to Anfield and it's still Liverpool it's still Mo Salah uh, and Roberto Firmino and uh, Alexander Arnold and Jurgen Klopp and the Klopp end yeah of course I, I think if Arsenal had won the game I think you it would have been a giant stride towards the title I think a lot of people assume that Arsenal are going to lose the game at City, another place where they don't have a great record. But I think they can go to that game and maybe play a little bit underdog there and, and see what they can do. Um, but I personally, Arsenal is six points clear at the moment. By the time we play City, it could well be nine points clear because of the vagaries of the of the fixture list. City are active in three tournaments, whereas Arsenal are um, active in just the one. So... Look, I, I certainly wasn't hitting the panic button. And by the time I went back to sleep, was very relieved that we had a young Aaron Ramsdale in goal uh, because it could have been a heck of a lot worse. 
Derek, I'll just uh, grab a word on the appointment of Dean Smith at Leicester for the rest of the season, not to uh, lead you down any particular path of thought, but Barry Glendening, Rob's mate from the Guardian Football Weekly, has said this is an astonishingly bad but ridiculously predictable appointment. Yeah, I think I know Rob's going to pick this up in stoppage time, so we won't go into to loads of detail, but I, I think the bottom line is that they've been touting this Leicester City job around to a bunch of different managers and no one wants it. They're a team in free fall, um, definite um, attitudinal and confidence problems. And, you know, Jesse Marsh and a few others of uh, Graham Potter have just said, no, I don't, I don't want to touch this till at least the summer till I can see whether they're a Premier League team or not. They they needed someone in charge. Uh, Dean Smith does come with John Terry um, and Shakespeare as well. So two quite dominant and uh, experienced characters. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's never going to set the world on fire, but who, who are they expecting to get? I suppose that <laughs> would be my rebuttal to, to Barry Glendenning. Not that I, 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 I think most of his, uh, coverage is pretty good. Celtic have strengthened their group on back-to-back Scottish Premiership titles with a 3-2 win over Rangers that extends their lead to 12 points with 7 to play. Rangers had reason to feel aggrieved after Alfredo Morelos's opener was ruled out for some pretty soft contact on his defender. From there, the scoring floodgates opened. Kyogo Furuhashi and James Tavernier with braces for their respective sides, although ultimately Jota's goal proved the difference. Alan McGregor a bit to do here with Jota! Close out with a bit of Socceroos Central for the Green and Gold Army. Make sure you've signed up to the mailing list to be among the first to know when packages drop for January's Asian Cup. Ten on the bounce for St. Pauli. Uh, we know they need third place, and this win came over third place head and home. They are now just three points clear. Uh, Jackson played the full match. Connor Metcalf got through 74 minutes, Rob. Uh, this is going to go right down to the wire. Yeah, it is. It's incredible, isn't it, that Jackson Irvine's uh, sort of uh, presence both with the, uh, the the national men's side and uh, and his club side in the Bundesliga too, uh, uh, sort of rising um, exponentially. And if if he can, as we uh, we hear it out of Germany, um, drag his his side up to promotion. Uh, what a what a memorable uh, outcome that, that would be. And with uh, you know another uh, member of the Green and Gold squad, uh, Connor Metcalf in the team, um, it'd be a fantastic story for Australia. But just as a general football story, the you know the club itself, St Pauli, they're uh, they're one of those sort of rogue outlier clubs that that, that is that is more uh, of a of a public uh, organisation um, that uh, that represents. Uh, a lot more than football in in uh, in the way they go about their their business and um, and so yeah just a great story hopefully we can get Jackson on again soon and, and get a bit of an insight into it and uh, and that um, and that run can keep on going. Denis John Rowe made a rare French top flight start for Toulouse. He laid on an assist for the opener and a two one win against the odds against Montpellier. Uh, we mentioned Celtic. Aaron Moy played the first. First hour of that old firm derby, while down at the bottom end of the table, as is Bayich and Mark Birigidi are battling relegation with Dundee. Uh, they had a 2-1 win over Jimmy Jego and Hibernian, all three playing full matches. And to Japan to close, as we often do, a clean sheet for Mitch Langerak and a nil-all draw. Nagoya are second. Unfortunately, Pete Klamovsky uh, last week has sacked, was sacked by his uh, J2 club, Monterio Yamagata. Rob, so it all started so well when he uh, took over that uh, job mid-year. I think they, they won 10 or 12 on the bounce, uh, but he's a, uh, a manager with plenty of standing in that part of the world. So we'll see where he heads to next.
Yep, sure will be, and um, we'll be talking in, in a little more detail about uh, what um, hopefully might be a momentum shift for uh, Yokohama F Marinos uh, beating uh, their uh, recently promoted uh, crosstown rival Yokohama FC five nil in the uh, in the uh, the local derby there for. Kevin Musket as well. All right, mate, well done. Uh, that's a, a great start to the show. You're going to stick around and have a chat with me. And uh, Carl Viet, hasn't he done well? Three-year contract, he's just re-signed. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's almost a lifetime in the life of a football manager to get an extension like that in a one-team town. And hasn't he turned around Adelaide United after, you know, what was a bit of a wobbly start to the season to, to be one of the, the form teams, uh, if not the form team, in the A-League competition. We're going to have a chat to him next on Box to Box. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, we mentioned off the top of the show that Melbourne City are at the top of the A-League men's ladder. And uh, while they haven't got the premiership locked away, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult for anyone to chase them down. But... There is a chase going for the finals, and certainly the grand final, uh, the championship, is well and truly up for grabs. And one of the teams that has been motoring in recent times on a 12-game unbeaten streak is Carl Vietz, Adelaide United, and we have got Carl on the line with us right now. How are you, Carl? I'm very good, guys. Thank you. So, Carl, I mean, you know, we, we've got lots of positive stories to, to go through, but but one, not so much... Uh, uh, to, to get started. So as I said, you're, you're 12 unbeaten, but Friday's draw with Sydney means the Premiership is probably gone now. Uh, uh, you said post-game you, you perhaps weren't brave enough uh, once you'd scored that opener. Were you surprised that the boys went that way, knowing what was uh, mathematically up for grabs uh, in what's been, after what's been such a you know a confident couple of months? Um, no, look, you know, we have to give credit to Sydney FC. They played uh, very well in the night and they, you know, the first half they sat a little bit off of us and allowed us to have a little bit of control of the game. And then when we scored early, that I think the boys maybe just got a little bit comfortable. And then when Sydney started pressing and being a bit more aggressive, um, it was a little bit um, difficult for us to get out of that comfortable position. And that's what um, you know cost us the three points in the end. Yeah, yeah, no, fair, fair point. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a, an incredible um, uh, season, or at least last three months even. Uh, but uh, but to get uh, the, uh, the 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 point split was uh, the very worst, uh, at least a point gain rather than two loss. So, uh, you know, the more positive stories, obviously all managers and players, you know, they, they, they work for, for themselves, but also their fans. I mean, there's there's a, a, a real sense at the moment around Highmarsh at a time when you know most A-League clubs are really struggling to connect and engage that Adelaide is absolutely thriving. So, I mean, 14,000 on Friday, um, you, you know, you really are the, the must-watch fixture every week for people like us who, who might not be partisan Adelaide fans, but we just love watching a football match with a lot of excitement and hype. Uh, you know, does it? How does it feel for, for the club and the lads to, to know that they're playing uh, in, in an environment that's just so warmly received and making such a, a huge mark on the community? Yeah, look, it's. I, I suppose it's important that you know, um, for you to have success, you need your supporters to get behind you and. And help you drive and drive you during games. And our supporters this year have been excellent in, in doing that. But um, you know, the club are doing the right things by the fans. They're engaging the fans and and making a, a positive experience coming to to Highmarsh to watch us play. And and it's important that we play. You know, put on put on a bit of a 
a performance that um, the fans go home happy witnessing a, a high quality game. And um, and Craig Goodwin, um, you know his leadership and his development. I mean, he's thirty one years old now. We saw what he did in the World Cup. He's 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 sort of found that consistency now to, to match the talent. He's one of those players where you now know if he's in the side, you, you're going to expect a lot as a, as a spectator. Um, you know, it's something we always know that he's had um, in him, but it, the consistency just wasn't there. But it seems to have come with with maturity. Um, can you just reflect a little on his growth um, and and your observations on Craig since you took on the job in uh, mid-2020? Yeah, look, um, you know, Craig's always had the quality as a player and I think that's quite evident in his performances for the club over the, the couple of spells that he's had at the club. And, and when he came back um, from Saudi two years ago, um, you know, he met, was a, a big reason for us to have a, a late drive and get into the finals that year. Um, and then... Um, since he's been um, taken over the captaincy role at the start of this season, um, you know Craig has, um, you know, taken his game to another level. Not just his performances on the on the pitch, but the way he's interacting with with the whole playing group um, at training and away from the game, and and making sure that everyone's focused and doing their job. He's been, um, yeah, taken in, which has then shifted his game into a, into another level as well. So um, it's all come down to, I suppose. As you say, the maturity, but just the confidence in himself now. He's, he has, especially you know, after the World Cup, he's just um, you know become very confident in himself, and and I think that's shown in his performances. Carl, keen to ask you about a couple of players at the other end of their career. Joe Gauchi is is one that you've entrusted and one who's paid you back as well. Uh, and he's now earned the reward and is a senior socceroo. And it looks like all the doors uh, are opening. He could he, His career really could be whatever he wants it to be. Uh, and we spoke to him on this program about a month ago now. He's very clearly very thoughtful and, and committed. Um, behind the scenes, what makes him tick uh, as a professional day-to-day? Yeah, look, Joe has, as you said, um, you know, um, I brought him into the club when I got the job and having that work with Joe when he was a young goalkeeper. Um, and since then, since he's come in, he's had, you know, he came in as the number two behind James Delanoff and James Delanoff picked up an injury and then Joe took over and then Joe got injured and James came back in. So the first two years, they were interchanging with injuries and, and since Joe got back into the side last season, he has been tremendous, hasn't um, missed a game and it's just his whole... Um, package his professionalism, his first one for training every day, um, making sure he's doing all the right things, um, leading up to a game. After the game, he's making sure he does everything right for recovery, his, his diet. He's just doing everything possible um, to be his best, and you know that's why he's, I suppose, had such a, a steep incline in his um, rising performances because he's actually really investing in himself. And speaking of steep incline, Nestoria and Kunda is even younger again. Uh, it's it's all come very quickly for him. Adelaide, I suppose, of all clubs, is pretty well-versed in managing young kids coming through. So how do you as a manager handle a player like him? Do you, do you speak to him a little bit more given his youth? Do you, do you keep him hungry? Do you sort of drill in the bigger picture that he still has a long way to go? How do you, how do you handle him day to day? Yeah, look, it's um, one where you have a lot of um, one view one conversations with Nesta um, about um, not having success now. It's about him having success for a long time in, in his career, and if he ha- and he has has to do the right things. And you know, a perfect example of that is 
as I just we just spoke about Joe Gauchy. He needs to learn what it takes to be a professional player um, and to have success, and and it's just you know not turning up and hoping that it all goes as well uh, because you're going to have setbacks and how you react to those setbacks and he's had some setbacks this year and he's responded well to them and it's just a matter of him still being you know he's still 17 and it's important that we still um, remember that he's 17 and let him you know make mistakes let him you know learn along the way and let him enjoy his football that's the most important thing for him at the moment Um, and just try and take things in and, and Find his own his own path and his own way of um, how he can become the best player that he can be. And if I can just ask you about one more individual before a couple of bigger picture questions, I think a few ears will maybe pricked up by the high praise that you gave Jay Barnett following the game uh, on Friday. You said that you believe, obviously you brought him in for a reason, but that you believe he's the best young six uh, in the country. We saw little bits of his best at, at victory, but never quite got the consistent run at it there and probably hasn't had the consistent run at it with you guys either, uh, due more so to, to injury than form. But evidently, uh, you have a lot of time for, for Jay as a player. Yeah, most definitely. I've known Jay for a long time, coached him when he was a young kid. Um, and he just needs, um, as you say, he just needs a, a good run in the team and playing in his natural position. You know, as you said, he was at victory for for a number of years and never really played in his natural position, which is a six. He played a lot of games at fullback there. Um, and he's a, a great kid that works extremely hard. And, you know, as I said, I, I believe he has all the attributes to be a very successful number six. And, you know, we're fortunate that we managed to get him to the club. I tried before to get him back to the club and we got him in the January transfer, which is will give him, you know, the rest of this year plus next year um, to, you know, watch and see how it um, goes about playing in that position. You know, there's, you know, he's one of the best sixes playing in the A-League and it's an opportunity for Jay to, to learn as much as he can over the next year and a half while Issa is still um, playing. Uh, Carl, more broadly, the club where you, you first made your name uh, as, a, as a player and where you finished your playing days, Adelaide City, uh, put themselves forward for Football Australia's National Second Division uh, as a player of the NSL era. Have you, have you made much of these developments? Is this something that you sort of look at and ruminate on in Australian football more broadly or, or do you sort of more keep within your own, your own backyard uh, in terms of your own day-to-day management? Yeah, look, of course you take an interest in what's happening in, in the game in Australia because, you know, I'm, like most um, people that's involved in, in the game here, that we want what's best for the game and going ahead and we want a successful A-League and a successful, you know, local leagues as well. Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of, you know, the second division. I know a lot of teams are interested in doing it and it'd be interesting to see how it all develops. But, um, you know, we just need a lot more opportunities. You know, we need more games in the A-League. We need more opportunities the young players to play more minutes and, and that's, you know, that can help with that and it can be sustainable. I'm all for it. And, um, and so with that previous response in mind, um, the overall state of the A-League, you were there at the start of the competition, obviously scoring the first ever goal in 2005. You've been a manager for a long time now. You're about to go into a finals campaign uh, where you know you won't be awarded a home ground advantage if you weren't it um, in the grand final. Um, yeah, I mean, how how do you feel about that um, now that it's it's actually you know coming? I mean, I know you don't want to get ahead of yourself, and you know it's one game at a time, and uh, you know the the finals aren't even here. But uh, what what are your thoughts on, on that 
that uh, and and the potential for that to play out where uh, where you know it might be an Adelaide versus Melbourne City grand final being played in Sydney. Yeah, look, um, you know, um, I think one of the best experiences I've had as an Adelaide United supporter was the grand final at Adelaide Oval um, when they when they beat Western Sydney Wanderers. But look, it's something that the the league and the clubs, I suppose, that they all had the a discussion about it before it was announced. It was just, um, you know, maybe the, the way that it was, went about it. Um, you know, the league needs to do what's best for the league. And at the time, I, I suppose they managed to um, generate some revenue from that. And, you know, it's disappointing that, you know, I suppose clubs that aren't in Sydney, if they win that right to um, host their grand final, that they won't be doing it. But I suppose then it comes up to the league to make sure that, their supporters can easily get to those games and to watch it if they if their team from outside Sydney um, make a grand final. Yeah, well, uh, I think for you know one thing, and we've already discussed it uh, so far, is that uh, that there are plenty of Adelaide supporters and uh, and Adelaide fans do tend to travel if you watch any of the other codes. So, uh, you know, without uh, I'm not asking you a particular question about the support base of Melbourne City, but uh, there would be a lot more red in that stadium at Parramatta if uh, if you happen to get there. So, you know, speaking of the path to the finals, there's uh, a few games to go and uh, and a tricky route. You've got um, you know one of the other real form teams in a, in a few weeks' time to bring home the competition in, in the Central Coast Mariners. Uh, uh, who, apart from City, do you uh, uh, see in, in that sort of second through or even, you know, eighth or but the, the, the latter uh, is, is open yeah. enough um, that, that could pose the most danger to, to, to the, um, winning the grand final? Yeah, look, I, I think that's the, the beauty of final system. Anyone, you know, that makes the top six has a realistic ch- chance of... Um, Going all the way, you know, we saw that with Western United last year, coming from uh, third position to to win the the championship. So it's it's just important that you know this, you know the teams that make the finals that they, you know, whoever's in gets that little bit of luck and is in good form can have a real good shot at it. So, um, you know, it's um, as you said, Melbourne City have had a, a great season, so Central Coast and Western Sydney Wanderers have been a, a very good side this year as well. And you know, there's I'd say. You know, the other teams that end up making the finals, um, I'm sure they will think that they will have a really good chance as well of, of going all the way. And one more broadly sort of out of left field question with uh, uh, with the Women's World Cup coming up soon and and, um, and, and the, the build-up and the hype uh, of one of the, the biggest events in the world. Have you got a sense of whether Australia really gets how big this uh, event's going to be as, a, as an international person of football yourself, uh, uh, you know, 100 days away uh, as we record the the, uh, the show? Um, is it something that you think is really starting to gel and, um, and, and, and will Australia be shocked by just how big that event is when it eventually comes around? Um, yeah, look, I, I think it will be um, when, when when the, the well the women's World Cup starts. I think that's when it will really start generating interest. As they were hundred days away from that, and it's important that there's uh, gets the support and and the funding that it needs to to keep making sure that it has long time success for the you know the women's league here in the A League. Yeah, no, well said, mate. All right, Carl, we'll let you go, mate. Congratulations on recently signing the, the three-year contract. Uh, but Nathan Cosmina was uh, fulsome in his praise and, and said they couldn't get that contract in front of you quick enough, mate. So uh, uh, you'll be around uh, Adelaide for a long time yet, mate, and um, and doing some wonderful things over there. All the best for the rest of the season and the finals as they come. And uh, hopefully uh, there's a few more chapters uh, yet to write in the season of the Reds. 
Not a problem, guys. Thanks for um, having me on. Not at all, Carvey. Uh, Australian football icon, legend uh, as he is, not only in the green and gold, but obviously an Adelaide man through and through and doing excellent things at Adelaide. Okay, stick around after the break. We're going to skip to the other side of the world and uh, talk to uh, Liam Toomey from The Athletic. Chelsea are doing, as they tend to do, incredible things with the, the Women's Super League. Sam Kerr, obviously, in the thick of all of that. But uh, on the other end of the scale, the, the men's side, Frank Lampard, has certainly, well, at least in his first outing, not, uh, not done anything to shift the, uh, the the downward spiral of, of the men's side. Um, Liam Toomey is in the very thick of all of it and we're going to talk to him about it all next on Box to Box. Now Derek, uh, I know you're a little bit nasally mate but uh, have you had your flu shot yet? No Rob, it's a, it's a great reminder I ha- haven't had it yet and uh, with all the late nights that I'm having and disturbed sleep uh, I need to be careful and ke- keep my immune system fully boosted so I'll be down to Chemist Warehouse as soon as we're done here. Uh, and it's easy to do because uh, all, all literally and I've done this before already myself I'm booked for a couple of weeks time uh, to, to just jump online and, and search via your postcode for your nearest Chemist Warehouse so you know, you really do have to get in early, help protect yourself with the flu immunisation. It's the quadrivalent vaccine. It'll help protect against the four strains of influenza, but it can take a couple of weeks to take full effect. So book your appointment now. It takes the community to build immunity. We all know that. It's quick, it's convenient, it's affordable. And Derek, you don't need a script. How handy is that? No, no, amazing. I mean, for, again, uh, busy life, Rob. There's lots going on. So the fact that I can just swing by as I'm uh, driving past will be uh, will be excellent. Exactly, mate. So this year, the quadrivalent strain at Chemist Warehouse is just $19.99. So build your immunity. Book your flu immunisation today at chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. The prescription and the administration are provided in store by a qualified health professional. So it's all taken care of. Get it done. It's easy for you and your family at Chemist Warehouse. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And uh, as we said off the top of the show, uh, there are always plenty of stories in, in the English Premier League. We're going to expand on a few of them in stoppage time later in the week. So tune in for that when it drops in your podcast feed, but one of the, the real stories, a contrast of fortunes uh, in the top flight of the, the men's, the Premier League and the Women's Super League is, is of course, Chelsea. Uh, uh, the women's side, Emma Hayes, has got the competition in their hands to lose. Um, they're, they're trailing Manchester United by a point, uh, just a few games to go, and uh, and obviously from an Australian point of view, we're hoping that a fit and firing Sam Kerr leads them to the title and comes in uh, brimming form to the World Cup back home. Meanwhile, in the men's, uh, Frank Lampard's return has uh, not delivered uh, well, only one game, but uh, nothing at all so far. Uh, what going on at Stamford Bridge. What's the vibe and the feel? Uh, the go-to man for us has uh, he is for many, many uh, publications uh, and broadcasters around the world, including the BBC's Liam Toomey. And we uh, welcome Liam back to Box to Box. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, guys. Um, looking forward to talking about the women's team because they're maintaining yeah. the standards for the entire club at the moment. <laughs> Well, they seem to be. I mean, Emma Hayes uh, is an elite manager in anyone's language, in any sport, any competition in the world. Uh, uh, she's uh, she's delivered uh, a, a wonderful uh, culture around the club for elite performance, uh, of, of melding uh, a side of top-level performers and, and some journey women, uh, to, to coin a phrase, uh, uh, not the least of which is our very own Sam Kerr, who uh, has got a bit of a niggle um, as, as we speak. But uh, just talk to us about 
what uh, what your expectations are in these final uh, matches of the season. As we said, they've got a game in hand and really the, the, the title is theirs to lose. Yeah, I think Chelsea is certainly looking at it as there being everything on the table for them in all competitions. And, and obviously they want to win the league again. That is that is kind of Chelsea's baseline to, to, to reassert their domestic dominance on a yearly basis. But the the Holy Grail is and has been for several years, the Champions League. And mm-hmm. I think beating Leon yes. in the fashion that they did, uh, in the dramatic fashion that they did at Stamford Bridge, I think it was great. It was great for the for the profile of the women's team. I mean, they've already got a very good profile, but moments like that at Stamford Bridge in front of big crowds, I think, can only help build their support as well. Um, but I think it was also huge for their belief because Leon have been. The, the the European nemesis really um, over the last few years they have been the benchmark I know Barcelona have risen in the last year or so but um, Leon of the traditional giants so they are the team that Emma Hayes has always measured herself against as much as Arsenal or Manchester City or anyone Chelsea are com- competing with domestically so to beat them to set up a, a another box office tie against Barcelona chance for revenge from the from the Champions League final uh, a couple of years ago um i think it's everything is there for them and i think it mm. will be the champions league that gets them the most motivated but they're in the position right now that they want to be in which is that the trophies are are maybe not quite within their reach yet but just out of their reach so Liam, tell us i mean i i i, I don't want to uh, to to uh, insult the women's competition and the women's club by framing the question in the fashion that I'm about to, so I'll, I'll try to to ask it in the in the, the best manner that I can. But it, but are we sort of going to a, a, a perfect storm scenario in football in England off the back of uh, the Lionesses winning the Euros? Uh, that there is going to be one club which is the outlier um, as a successful men's club who has a women's team that makes that transition into the mainstream as a, as a team that uh, that generates genuine results genuine crowds in their own right that then leads the way for the other big clubs to to follow so that eventually uh the the, the time frame uh, uh towards bigger crowds as a, as a standard practice of big clubs playing in the main stadium rather than the training field. Uh, am I, you, do, do you get the point that I'm making here, Liam? Is this, this something that we're seeing here, particularly with the men's side doing so poorly? Well, in terms of the, the profile, I think that, that there's perhaps something to that. Um, I, don't, I don't think the long-term plan is for Chelsea women to play at Stamford Bridge all the time. Um, I don't think they even really want that. Because I, I think the identity they're building, um, and they've done really, really well at building over the last few years, is, is built around a very organically growing following at Kings Meadow. Um, and there may be, in the in the medium to long term, there may be a case for you know them moving into um, a, a bigger stadium as, as the fan base naturally grows. But I think I think Chelsea want to grow it organically. They've already made great progress in terms of. Um, their social media footprint, I believe, is a lot bigger than a lot of other women's teams. Um, and having global stars like your very own Sam Kerr, I think, really helps on that front. Um, and I think from from the from the WSL 
perspective and from the way that the FA are looking at the growth of the women's game, especially since um, England won the Euros, is that they, you know, they they haven't been too keen on any sort of ideas for a salary cap in WSL or, or you know, or greater competitive balance through the league. I think their idea is very much based on the rise of the Premier League, which is that the the rising tide lifts all boats, as it were. And, and and the more that the top teams like Chelsea, like Arsenal, like Manchester City, Liverpool and Man United, the more they invest in women's football, um, and Chelsea have been leaders on that front for a long time, the more um, the league itself will grow, the more the TV rights will grow, which in turn will benefit the smaller clubs in the league. And eventually, eventually I think the hope is that the WSL, and it's already starting to happen I think yeah, um, yeah. it might be something that Leon and Barcelona are a bit worried about is that WSL becomes the destination league in women's football um, yeah. and you do get the biggest stars from everywhere in the world wanting to come to to England as a first point port of call um, but Chelsea are very much central to that and I, I, I've always thought as well that Emma Hayes is a fantastic ambassador for the product as a whole Um not not just not just what she does at, at Chelsea as a as a coach and as a manager of that project, but she speaks for the women's game so well, and she she's full of ideas about how to continue to build it. So I, I think yeah. that's that's all part of this as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it'll be fascinating to watch this whole scenario play out and uh, and whether you know what directions the, um, the the women's competition takes. Ultimately, you mentioned our very own Sam Kerr, of course, as we record. Uh, uh, we're less than uh, twelve hours away from uh, the Matildas Australian women's side playing uh, a friendly against uh, the uh, the reigning European champions. Uh, uh, Sam Kerr is. Uh, iconic uh, around the world as a, as a, a, a sports person, let alone a female sports person, but uh, she's one of the, the top uh, Australian sports people competing on the world stage right now. Uh, what we... Uh, do get a little frustrated at though is uh, is Sam just seems to sort of bang him in for fun uh, when she plays for for, for the club and uh, uh, there are times when all the pressure of the world is heaped on her shoulders uh, by this podcast as well as uh, every other pundit out there and supporter. Uh, um, what do you see um, as a person who observes the the, the team so closely um, of Sam Kerr and and what you've seen her in this past season at the very least as she she grows and what we hopefully will see uh, provided she remains remains injury-free as a, as a key uh, uh, influence for the Australian women's side in the in the upcoming World Cup. Well, I think what's been interesting about Sam Kerr this year is that she hasn't been as prolific as the previous two for Chelsea, um, where she averaged basically a goal per WSL game. Um, but she's arguably been every bit as talismanic because Chelsea have been without Frank Kirby, Panilla Harder, for, for quite long stretches and that has deprived this team not just of firepower but of a bit of imagination um, and of an extra dimension that they had before and I think in uh, in the absence of that the other things that Sam Kerr provides are really important even aside from her goals so the, the way she leads the line the way she holds the ball up I was really impressed actually watching the game against Leon with how well she battled defenders and, and really set the table for Chelsea to come forward after after spells of pressure. So she does a lot of little things as well and less glamorous things to to help the team win. Um, and I think we've seen that this year. And, and despite the fact that she's not been as prolific, 
I think you've still seen that she retains the ability for Chelsea to score huge goals in big moments. You know, she scored massive goals in games against Arsenal and Manchester United, Man City this season. Um, and I think really the the most reliable attacking connection the team has had this year in the absence of of Kirby and, and Harder is is Guro right and crossing from the left and, and, and Sam Kerr um, attacking it and, and converting it. Um, so I, th- I think she'll be, continue to be absolutely key to what Chelsea do. Um, I think they'll they'll try to manage her her fitness as, as carefully as possible, um, given the, the number of big games they have coming up. But there may not be that many opportunities to rest her down this stretch run because Chelsea are competing on all fronts. Now, Liam, you've been prolific uh, on many different uh, podcasts. Uh around the men's team over the past week or so with the installation of Frank Lampard. It's good to kind of get you maybe a bit more reflective rather than in the moment. We've seen a game now, which we'll talk about in a moment. But was the appointment of Frank Lampard, does that does that just touch on the difficulty of trying to get a manager that will only come in and only be guaranteed for you know, seven or eight games. We've seen Leicester appointed Dean Smith and that's probably not the calibre of manager they were looking for as they try and stave off relegation. I mean, does you know, is was, was Lampard really the only option available to Chelsea? Well, they certainly saw him as the best option in the situation that they were in. I think it's very rare, um, certainly for a, you know, a, a traditional, I don't know how, a lot of people wouldn't call Chelsea a traditionally big club, but you know, by modern standards, I mean, over the last sort of, 20 years or so, it's very rare for a job like that to become available in April. Um, and and it usually reflects bad circumstances. I mean, you look back at 2015-16, Antonio Conte accepted the Chelsea job in April, but he didn't take it until the summer um, because that's when most top coaches want to take these jobs they want they want to come in with a clean slate they don't want to be tainted by an awful season um in Chelsea's particular case they don't want to be immediately saddled with a ludicrously bloated squad and have all the all the difficult decisions associated with that um and I don't think there's there was necessarily great enthusiasm to come in less than a week out from a Real Madrid tie that carries a whiff of a hospital pass, really, if you're a new coach, um, given how good they are in that competition and how settled they they are. So I think once Chelsea got themselves into a position where they they sacked, where, where they, they felt they needed to sack Graham Potter, and again, just as with Thomas Tuchel, you can question the timing of the decision, arguably more than anything else. Um I think it quickly became clear that Bruno Saltor and and the rest of Potter's backroom staff, as you would expect, did not want to stick around without Potter because they're they're his team. Um, And Bruno looked incredibly uncomfortable before and after the Liverpool game with the position that he was in. So Chelsea found themselves in a position where they needed a, they, they needed a, an immediate solution, um, or just an, an immediate sort of placeholder, if anything. Uh, I don't want that to sound disrespectful to Lampard and everything he means to Chelsea, but that that is kind of the situation. Um, while they 
while, while they try and take as much time as possible and be as deliberate and thorough as possible about getting the next appointment right. Because I think everyone at the club now knows after the, the disaster, um, the, after the disastrous way that the Potter tenure played out for, for many reasons, um, I think that everyone at the club is very, very aware that they need to get the next appointment completely, completely right. And there are some good candidates out there. So in that, in that big context um, and the idea maybe from the owners that they, they needed a little bit of a PR boost um, given the, the backlash that, that they were getting Lampard made a degree of sense. He's certainly more experienced uh, as a top level coach than John Terry or Didier Drogba or any other sort of Chelsea legend you might care to name, even if his his record with that experience is decidedly mixed. So I, th- I think that's how we've ended up at the point where Chelsea have brought Lampard back. Is there any even latent hope that Chelsea might be able to turn the form around to the extent that they can be in the conversation for Champions League football? And if And if not, is it all about this game against Real Madrid? And in fact... Would Chelsea prefer, if it is in Champions League football, to just not be in any European competition next year and not kind of playing around in you know the dreaded Conference League or even the Europa League? Well, there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, I mean, the obviously, Champions League qualification through the league is gone. That's been gone for some time, both in terms of points and teams to jump. Chelsea can qualify for the Champions League by winning it, as they did in 2012, but that window looks vanishingly small. Um, at this point, given the way the draw has played out and um, and given the situation that they're in. As long as you have the talent that Chelsea have, you have hope because there is a, an awful lot of talent in this squad, but what they don't have are any of the other things that you normally associate with uh, being successful in a team sport right now. You should be planning for, for the worst and for not having that TV income um, for next season and not having that Champions League football to offer potential signings. As for the question of whether they they want um, European football below the Champions League, I think financially every little helps, given how much Chelsea have spent. Um, And arguably, given how big the squad is and may still be going into next season, despite the best selling efforts, having like a Europa Conference League or even Europa League group stage might be a blessing in disguise because it's a chance to actually give give some of these guys minutes and keep them invested. I know that was um, actually quite useful in Maurizio Sarri's season, for example. Um, the Europa League group stage was where guys like Callum Hudson-Odoi and, and, and Ruben Loftus-Cheek got a bit of a run um, when they weren't getting it in the league. So that could be part of this as well. Um, but yeah, Chelsea want to be in the Champions League. Financially, they need to be in the Champions League. Uh, it, it looks extremely unlikely that they're going to be able to get there this year, given the difficulty of their of their path to, to winning it again. Um, but as long as they're in and they have the talent that they have, they'll, they'll have hope. And you mentioned the new manager search. Uh, there's obviously Chelsea will always be a much sought-after seat uh, in global football and um, they've obviously gone down the Potter route which hasn't worked in terms of bringing in a in a coach and um, some of the reporting has been around whether Potter sort of from his general character you know and I think many people 
denied that he wasn't a, a very accomplished coach, but did he have the character and the pedigree to take over Chelsea is something that's been being questioned. But which kind of route do you feel like they're going to go down and would you like to see them go down? I know they're talking about, you know, Enrique and um, Nagelsmann at the moment. Pochettino seems to be in uh, in every conversation. Do you think it's about getting the right the manager that has the right kind of technical blueprint for this squad and this group of players or is it about bringing in the manager that's kind of got the right I suppose attitude personality to sort of manage a club the size of Chelsea yeah I I don't know who would be best I don't even know if there is a perfect candidate um, because there are a lot of boxes to tick as you say you know I think you need to be in order to have real staying power um, at a club that is expecting to compete for the biggest trophies every year, I think you need to be elite tactically. Um, but you also need to be very, very skilled in man management. Um, and you have to be charismatic enough, I think, to be the front-facing symbol of the club to the fans uh, and be able to speak to the fans. And that was something in particular that Graham Potter really struggled with. I think that he just didn't have to deal with at Brighton. It's not something that people weren't paying attention to his press conferences every three days and, and dissecting everything he said. Um, Thomas Tuchel ticked most of those boxes for Chelsea, and that's why he he was very successful for a time um, and very popular for most of his reign. But the the one thing he did lack was the ability to to maintain those relationships, both with the dressing room. And with once the ownership changed, although I'm personally of the view, we'll never know this. I think problems would have emerged between him and the old hierarchy as well, sooner rather than later, probably around Romelu Lukaku. <laughs> um, but uh, when we're when we're projecting forward, um, you know, there are coaches out there that appear to tick at least some of those boxes. You know, Julian Nagelsmann is regarded as a as a real generational talent. Um, I don't particularly love that phrase, but, you know, given how young he is and how accomplished he is tactically, um, that that's something that, that is appealing. But part, part of his unravelling at, at Bayern Munich or part of what led Bayern Munich to sack him was the perception that he was struggling to manage uh, a squad of really high-profile international stars um, and convince them to go his way. That would maybe be slightly less less of an issue with Chelsea, where the squad skews younger than Bayern's, but it would still be an issue, definitely, with lots of expensive signings. Luis Enrique um, did amazing work with big stars at Barcelona, but his record has been quite patchy outside of that, I think. And then some of the other guys they're looking at, I mean, Ruben Amarim at Sporting would be kind of more of a... Uh, would it be a Jose Mourinho appointment or an Andre Villas-Boas appointment? We, we we don't know, but he's a he's another very promising young Portuguese coach. Um, Oliver Glasner at Eintracht Frankfurt has been mentioned, um, and he's an interesting candidate. But again, not the not the biggest track record as a coach, despite winning the Europa League last year. And you have Maurizio Pochettino, who we know the owners uh, talked to before appointing Potter last time. They do like him. But he's not a sure thing either, you know. I think he did an I think he did an amazing job, which only get gets better with time at Tottenham, given 
the path they've been on since. Um, but he hasn't got the trophies and, and he struggled in a, in a different context at PSG. So I, I think this is why they want to take their time. They want to be as thorough as possible. They want to interview all these guys uh, and really deliberate it on every level because there, there isn't necessarily a perfect candidate and it's just about trying to pick the best one. Unless, of course, they bring the Roma coach back, whose name you mentioned uh, in fasting earlier on. Wouldn't that be funny? Um, Liam, thank you so much, mate. It's been great talking to you. It's uh, like, obviously, for Chelsea uh, supporters who, uh, who are listening, um, they, uh, they'd be just hanging off your every word. But for those of us who follow the, uh, the game on your side of the world, uh, uh, it's just great to get a, a real insight from somebody who has the, the kind of access that you do and the understanding that you do and ask our questions of you and, and get, a, get a feeling from it. Because, you know, there's a, a massive support for, for the, uh, the game in, in this part of the world. It might not be the, the number one uh, football code in Australia, but um, there's uh, plenty of us who are as we like to think as passionate about our credentials as, as anyone who follows the game, mate. So it's great to chat to you. Yeah, always a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. Good on you, mate. Liam Toomey, lovely chatting with him again, as always, Chelsea. Well, at least uh, the women are doing well and hopefully they'll be continuing to do well with our very own Sam Kerr. All right, stick around. We are going to talk uh, a little more World Cup. Uh, a couple of things. I've got to get a little tish off my liver uh, around the ticketing for the World Cup and, uh, and Willem's got a few things to add as well. That's next on Box to Box. Willa, willa, willa. Now, Derek, I know you love cooking and I know you love eating. Tell us one of your little uh, Henry Patrick's arrival, uh, the dishes that have starred in the Dyson family kitchen. Um, oh, look, I mean, we're really busy at the moment, Rob, so we're looking for good, good wholesome meals, but they're pretty quick to make. So I came back from uh, the Easter holidays today and I just decided to uh, throw together a bolognese. I know it's a pretty, uh, pretty tried and tested recipe, but uh, my points, herbs and spices, Italian mix will be going in that, and that will just keep my family fueled as we're getting through this busy time. Well, it might be easy, mate, but the, the difference is the flavour that you can pack in with the herbs and spices. I made one of my favourite go-to dishes. It's a French uh, lamb casserole, a navarin of lamb, so you get your lamb shoulder and uh, and baby carrots, turnips, baby potatoes, little onions, but the key to it all is the herbs and spices, so the I mean, obviously the the Hoyt's uh, four colour peppercorn mix and the and the ground rock salt, but uh, but the bay leaves. I know you love a bay leaf, Derek. Um, the the thyme, the uh, the, the parsley, uh, the uh, the flavours that really bring it out. So, look, if you want to cook something flavoursome, jam packed with flavour, particularly during these cooler months as they come up, make sure you get your empty spice jars filled with Hoyt's value packs. You will 100% be happy with Hoyt's as Derek and I are. They are at Coles, at Woolworths and good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's herbs and spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and we're going to wrap it up with a bit of a chat about uh, some stories in the World Cup that might not necessarily have uh, made it to your radar as uh, your busy football schedule, uh, listening to podcasts, reading and watching football throughout the course of the week uh, as a busy listener. But um, I'm going to kick things off, Willem, um, and and start off with what for me was a really disappointing outcome or a, a 
um, final phase of the World Cup, the Women's World Cup ticketing um, cycle. Um, I've already bought some tickets to take uh, my my son Alexander, special needs accessible seats uh, to two of the the finals at Amy Park. Now, when the final phase of the most recent round of ticketing was on sale, I, I was able to buy wheelchair seats, but for some reason, somebody else had bought the um, the carer seat or the, the the partner seat next to the uh, the wheelchair seat, and I just couldn't work out how that had been done. I tried to reach out to the Women's World Cup uh, organisers, the ticketing uh, uh, people, to to get some resolution on it, and all I could get, despite going through the main website, was auto replies. It seemed to immediately, the moment I hit send, feed me back an automatic reply to tell me what to do to buy tickets. I just couldn't get through to anybody to clarify it. So that led me to Mondays as we record the show. It is it is late in the day on, on Monday uh, deadline. I set an alarm for 15 minutes before the uh, the tickets went on sale and and I was ready to log on and, and, and get straight in there and, and find out what uh, what I could, could grab, even if it was just the wheelchair set, I was going to get that on my own and sort it out later. But what happened? I couldn't log on. No matter how many times I hit refresh, 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 and then I got onto you know the one source of instant information where you can find out if it's happening around the world. And I texted you guys the link to the FIFA World Cup ticketing uh, Twitter account, and yes, it was blowing up all over the world that nobody could log in. And ultimately, what I found was that it was uh, I was using Chrome, and I tried uh, Firefox. So I eventually got in, but 45 minutes late. By the time I logged on, everything was gone, and uh, I was just one of the many people who are disappointed so you know it's a fantastic story for the women's world cup that uh, you know close to three quarters of a million tickets have been sold but you would think an organization as big as fifa could uh, get those two particular elements sorted out one to make sure that people who aren't buying seats next to wheelchairs uh, um, don't have access to them and two that they would have the the system ready to log on so you know that's me just getting a little bit of shit off my liver because uh, in the end it means that i won't be able to take uh, my boy to see uh, Australia play Canada in that match. I might get accredited, but um, yeah, but I won't be able to take him. I think the first thing to point out is it's not a an Australia-New Zealand hosting the World Cup issue. It's mm. not incumbent on our governing bodies to run the ticketing, and it's mm. also not uh, a Women's World Cup issue. It's not like the mm. Men's World Cup. Oh, it's 100% a FIFA issue, Will. There's no question whatsoever. Yeah, and, That's uh, what it was. Yeah. Um, it can be disheartening and stressful to spend hours in line for the portal, uh, and then go through and, and see, you know, it sort of feels like you're walking through a supermarket before the apocalypse is just mm-hmm. empty, empty shelves and carts everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, I think the message for everyone would be stay calm. People jump mm-hmm. on and buy way more tickets than they intend on using. And from there, mm-hmm. uh, they filter down through sort of various hands and various means, some of them legitimate, some of them not. Uh, if you, yeah, if you, if you really want to get to a game i think yeah the matildas are probably a different different matter being the home nation that's something i haven't experienced um but for all other games i think if you want to get there stay calm tickets change hands contact michael edgley on his personal email uh, <laughs> yeah and, i do uh, have that be right. yeah good point um fortunately i have access to that because uh, you know he might be able to help me out but but it just does you know close the loop on my point and one of the uh, the twitter uh the outraged twitter comments uh, that came out of australia on that fifa site was why isn't the game playing at the MC- being played at the mcg no, so uh, yeah yeah, yeah you heard that before from me anyway all right that's my rant done uh, what have you got for us mate 
Uh, some comments from our federal sports minister, Annika Wells, who is a, a big football supporter. Her, her kids play. She was in Qatar uh, supporting the Socceroos. Uh, a nice write-up today from Sam Lewis of the uh, of the ABC. She said that if the World Cup is, this is Annika Wells, if the World Cup's to leave a, a bricks and mortar legacy, uh, the state federations need to align. They need to get their, their act together as a, as a uniform uh, operation and then pitch to the federal government. We know that we've got the Legacy 23 plan, all that money to be spent, but 79% has been attributed to the development of elite infrastructure, uh, being the, the stadiums that they're going to actually play in, rather than the grassroots and community facilities, which is what we all want to see improve uh, during the tournament so that it stays that way post uh, this is a quote from Wells. At the moment, in my experience as a new incoming sports minister, has been that everybody comes in with their individual pitch, even if it directly clashes with the individual pitch of the next state over or with the code that shares the stadium, and they just leave it for us, being the government, uh, to sort out. So this is the chat that we've been having since I first started on the show, Rob, uh, this this sort of mid-level of, of governance in our Australian game, uh, the, uh, the state federations been beneficial in the past has it run its course uh it's it's something that edge knows a lot about and has some pretty firm opinions on he probably needs to be here to have the chat uh properly but uh you know it, it's hard to get rid of them you're never going to pe get people to vote against self-interest but i think people look back on the asian cup um in a positive manner but with the caveat of well it didn't really leave a legacy in this uh country and and wells's closing statement in the piece was i think we're all aligned in wanting to leave a legacy so it needs to be sorted i want to direct this one to, to derek a person you know who's grown up in a footballing culture that's now spent the better part of a decade living in one which just wasn't doesn't have an organic one that uh, that has a vast array of sporting facilities but uh, there's there seems to just be a disconnect in football in this country to, to get the right facilities uh, I mean from your experience in the UK and from what you've seen here I mean what, what would your as a businessman, what would your opinion be or your approach be to try and uh, crack some heads together to, to, to sort out this situation? I just think generating some understanding about what genuine legacy actually looks like and, yes, sort of better infrastructure um, and full stadiums and hopefully, you know, Matilda's winning the tournament is, is part of the legacy, but, but obviously it's getting more girls and women playing football at, at all levels is clearly the long-term goal so that um, Matildas can capitalise on this upsurge, not just in the current, you know, in their current form uh, and where they are highly competitive, you know, compared to, say, their male counterparts. And I know from, you know, England hosting Euro 2022, there were some very, very clearly defined goals. They wanted to get half a million uh, women into into football across a whole range of different levels, including uh, ref, uh, new referees, um, more women playing for fun, uh, fitness and friendship, 120,000 more girls playing um, playing in uh, schools. And even uh, as of last month, the UK government uh, has been continuing to announce uh, more investment in the uh, in in the women's game as well. Um, uh, to address the kind of balance between male and female participation in football. So I think they could do well just to look at the most recent major tournament and talk, maybe pick up the phone to their counterparts in England and see how they're doing it. That might be the, the way to go. Yeah, we hope so because, uh, you know, we've, we've seen internationally 
you know, legacies work and, and, and more often than not, unfortunately, legacies post-World Cups and Olympics fail. You know, there are uh, uh, sporting organisations and countries around the world littered with uh, with with uh, great hope and promises pre-tournament that never seems to eventuate. I mean, we look at Qatar, uh, you know, what is actually happening over there post um, the World Cup uh, insofar as making some real and lasting change in terms of areas of social justice. Um, South Africa, you know, what, what's actually happening with some of the, the stadiums that were built there for that World Cup all those years ago. Brazil, another good example. Uh, I mean, even in Sydney, the Olympics, a, a lot of people still, you know, bitch and moan about um, the home Bush Olympic Stadium and, uh, and and its ongoing legacy. So, you know, this whole piece uh, was was fundamental to the Australian New Zealand pitch. So, you know, if we uh, we look back in twenty years' time um, and uh, and and has uh, delivered an outcome, then you know it, it might be, regardless of how well the Matildas or the um, uh, you know the uh, um, New Zealand counterparts, the the, the Silver Ferns um, uh, go, it's uh, it's going to be, um, I think, the ultimate. Um, metric or, or barometer of, of how well um, Australia and New Zealand have performed. All right, boys, well, look, let's wrap it up there. Uh, it's been another good show. Good to have you back, Derek. And uh, I noticed you a little bit nasally there, mate, you know, having two little ones around the house and uh, and the depths of winter approaching, mate. Um, you've you've uh, soldiered on as you always do when you when you step up to step over the white line. Yeah, there's plenty of out on. Uh, no doubt I'll be down to Chemist Warehouse at some point this week, Rob. As expected. See, I led you with it and you just delivered it, mate, right out. You crushed it into the boundary. Uh, we'll talk to you uh, during stoppage time a little later in the week, mate. Uh, Willem, uh, you uh, take a break, mate. Well done. Uh, thank you again, as always. Thank you, gents. All the best. And uh, Adam Maloney pressing the buttons for us in Damo's absence again, back-to-back weeks, mate, doing a beautiful job. Please make sure you subscribe to Box to Box, Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a huge difference. I've been noticing lately as we've been checking our accounts, a lot of people have been responding to our requests. So if you haven't done so far, it doesn't take very much effort at all just to you know click that five-star rating or leave a lovely review if you can. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS. Follow us on Twitter. Make sure you like us on Facebook as well. And join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.